Welcome to the Revo Podcast. Revo Church is one church in two locations with a vision to spark a revolution of life change through Jesus. We hope to accomplish this through our core values of love big, serve hard, live bold, grow deep, and move forward. For more information about our service times and locations, please visit our website at discoverrevo.com. All right. Good morning. Good morning. I am Barrett on staff here at Revo, and we're excited to have all of you with us. I'm excited for the opportunity to fill in for Pastor Nathan this morning. Uh, it is summertime, and we're going through our summer selfie series. So again, taking some snapshots of ourselves spiritually. How are we doing? Checking the pulse. And uh, we like summertime. I like summertime because we think about vacation. We think about time away. Maybe some of you have already been on vacation or you're going soon. Uh, we, we crave this time to unwind, to relax, to get away from it all. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that the rest of our year is very often just jam-packed, busy schedules where we're running around uh, hurried. And a lot of times that'll produce stress and anxiety. Uh, in fact, despite our prosperity in the U.S., uh, as, a, as a society, we are on the whole pretty overwhelmed with anxiety. I got interested in this uh, this week and I was doing some research, found that the National Institute of Health published some statistics from the early 2000s, and at that time, 20% of U.S. adults had an anxiety disorder, as defined by that study, within the past year. An anxiety disorder, one in five of us. Of those people, over half had experienced severe or moderate impairment because of those anxiety disorders. So this aren't, uh, these aren't inconveniences. This isn't a minor thing. These are really messing up people's lives. Just under a third of adolescents had experienced an anxiety disorder. And the average age for this to start was 11 years old. 11 years old. What are we stressed about? The American Psychological Association published some research uh, from between 2007 and 2014 called Stress in America, and they found that the most commonly reported sources of stress include, number one, can you guess? Money. Money was number one, 64%, and there were a couple other financial ones right underneath that. Uh, work was 60%, uh, 47% next after the financial concerns were family responsibilities. Family responsibilities stressed a lot of people, and at 46%, personal health concerns. So money, family, health are stressing us out. I found some other studies as well. Pew Research uh, had an article reporting, uh, I found this, this interesting, 72% of U.S. adults are worried about a future in which robots and computers can do many human jobs. 72% of us, this is uh, serious stuff for some of us. Uh, very interesting, 54% of U.S. Uh, parents, uh, adults, are worried that their child or children will struggle with anxiety or depression. Let that sink in. So statistically, over, the ha over half of the parents in this room are worried that your kids will be worried or depressed at some point in their lives. How is this stress manifesting itself? 42% uh, of folks reported having lain awake at night within the past month due to stress. Uh, just underneath that, 
33% of people reported having eaten too much or eaten unhealthy foods within the last month due to stress. So you stress eaters, you know who you are. 32% of people reported being sad or depressed. 29% of people feeling as though they could cry. How are we managing this stress or at least attempting to cope with it? Top management stress techniques. Number one, 40% of all Americans try to manage their stress by watching TV or movies for more than two hours a day. Netflix business is booming. 38% surf the internet, so similar, you go down the click tunnel. 27% nap or sleep to deal with their stress. So some of us can't sleep at night, others of us are trying to nap it off. 14% of people drink alcohol, 12% of people smoke. So we are a pretty anxious crowd as a society and our younger generations are actually more anxious than the older generations. The trend is getting worse. We're not dealing with it well. As followers of Jesus, we want to know God's take on this whole stress and anxiety uh, problem. And to see what the Bible has to say about it this morning will be in 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you have Bibles, you can flip there with me to 1 Peter 5. If you don't, no worries. Uh, the text will appear on the screen behind me. Now this book of the Bible is actually a letter, and it's written by and to people who, from a certain point of view, had a really good reason to be anxious. Uh, God wrote the letter through the human author Peter, and Peter himself had suffered a lot in his life for being a Christian. Uh, he was arrested and jailed three times, the Bible tells us. He was uh, threatened by local authorities. He was beaten because he was a Christian, and he had friends who were killed for their faith. Uh, commentators think that this letter was likely written uh, in the early 60s AD, and uh, it was a time when throughout the Roman Empire there was kind of sporadic persecution against Christians. It would just rise up because they were living in a way uh, that butted heads with the cultural norms, and at times it was very hostile persecution. In fact, some commentators think that Peter wrote this letter uh, to certain Christians in response to persecution that was happening because uh, some of you history buffs will know that in 64 AD, Rome burned. Rome is burning. And the Romans suffered tremendously because of this. They were devastated, lost a lot of their culture, a lot of people died. They were really mad about it, and they blamed their emperor, Nero. They thought he was responsible. Nero, not wanting to shoulder that burden, uh, redirected it and blamed Christians, and that caused a lot of persecution. Uh, Peter is writing to churches in modern-day Turkey, which would have been part of the Roman Empire and very subject to all of this suffering and persecution that was happening during that time. He's writing to encourage his readers that because of their faith in Jesus, they can and should trust God even when facing suffering. We'll be in chapter 5. It's the end of the letter, the last chapter, and Peter begins the chapter by encouraging church leaders to lead well. Effectively, he's just saying, hey guys, lead well. And then he's going to turn his attention to the church at large, to all of the folks uh, in the churches, and he's going to give them a somewhat surprising command, giving the context. That's where we'll pick up the thread. So read along with me. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. It says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility 
toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Is that surprising to you? Is this surprising to me? I'm thinking about the situation of the people that he's writing to. I'm thinking his, his last word to them, his final charge at the end of this letter is going to be, keep on keeping on. You can do it. Stay strong. Hang in there. You guys got this. That's not what he says. He tells them three times, be humble. This isn't a, a side idea. This is a huge thrust of what he's leaving these people with. These are his marching orders. What does humility have to do with suffering? Peter's drawing a direct connection here between humility on the one hand and freedom from anxiety on the other. A suffering, of course, often produces the fear and anxiety that we experience. So to understand what he's getting at, where he's coming from, we need to better understand biblical concepts of humility and its opposite, pride. And we'll start with pride. To do that, we're actually going to flip back to the beginning of our Bibles, to Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, flip back with me, but keep your page marked for 1 Peter 5. We're coming back shortly. Many of us know that Genesis starts with uh, the sovereign God of the universe powerfully, awesomely creating everything that exists. And as part of that creation, he'll create people, you and me. And he creates us in his image, meaning that God has created us so that we reflect back to God and to the rest of creation who God is. That's what our lives should be all about. That's the intended design but we're not always content with that. And so many of us know that as the story continues, God's created these two specific people, Adam and Eve, and he's placed them in, in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, and they have free reign of this place. They can uh, enjoy all of the bounty of his creation, but he places one limitation on them. He says, you can eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, is off limits. You shall not eat of it or you'll die. Well, people don't like limitations and we'll find out what happens starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Read with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Let's stop right there. This is important to note. This is, this is Satan. He's talking to Eve, and he's trying to convince Eve to reject truth about God and to believe a lie, and therefore calls her to cross this one line that God said, don't cross this 
line. And up to this point, she's largely resisting that temptation. She responds to this lie on the whole with with truth. She says, no, that's not what God said. God said this. Uh, She messes it up a little bit, and we could actually talk a lot about that. You'll note that God said, you shall not eat of the tree. Eve says, I can't eat of it or touch it. So she's broadened the command. Uh, But on the whole, she's actually resisting God. She's staying She's staying strong, so what's going to make the difference? We know how the story ends. We're we're all familiar with the story. What's going to cause Eve to actually cross this line, enter into open defiance of who God is? Let's find out in verse 4 as we keep reading. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What pushed Eve over the line? Satan holds it out right there in front of her. You can be like God. You can be wise like God. You can know good and evil like God. You don't need limitations. You can be like God. And this seed is sown. She thinks about it and she looks at the tree and she starts to believe it. She sees the fruit and she thinks, if I just eat of it, I will be wise. It's to It's desired to to make one wise. And so she takes of it and she eats. And Adam eats and they fall into open rebellion against God. And we all follow suit. This is the mother of all sins. The sin that gives rise to all other sins. Our attempt, our desire to be God. And we'll call that pride. So if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. The cause of pride is our desire to be God. The cause of pride is our desire to be God. Instead of making much of God, instead of reflecting back to him and to the rest of creation who he really is, it's as if uh, he's created us to, to hold up mirrors. This is who I am. But we want to turn those mirrors, we want to turn those things back towards ourselves. Instead of making much of God, we make much of ourselves. The problem is that, as Adam and Eve learned, we are terrible substitutes. (laughs) We are terrible substitutes, and just like Adam and Eve, when when we step into this pride, we will ultimately find ourselves ashamed and afraid. Because we know at heart, like deep down, we know that we're not God. We want a good God. We want a powerful God. But we know that we're not good like God is good. Maybe maybe I can convince myself that I'm good in comparison to someone else who I think is worse than me. But I also know the thoughts and the impulses, the desires that I have that I would be ashamed to say out loud. And I want to be powerful. I want to have control over my life. But I know that there are countless things that are beyond my control. I'm not God. And when we try 
to get on his throne, there's a tremendous cost. To see that cost, we're going to flip back now to 1 Peter 5, and we'll see, if you're taking notes, we'll see that the cost of pride is anxiety and God's opposition. Anxiety and God's opposition are the cost of pride, and the second God's opposition, even though they are related, the second is the much, much weightier issue. But we'll start with anxiety since we've discussed it some already. And so look with me back to 1 Peter 5, verse 6. It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, we've got to do some English grammar work here this morning, so I I apologize for that. I know it's the weekend, but when we look at this sentence, both in the original language and it's properly reflected here in this English version, the the main verbal phrase, the, the thrust of the sentence is humble yourselves. That's the main verb. And then the later, what we would call a subordinate clause, casting all your anxieties on him, refers back to the main verbal phrase. It's a participle referring back to the main verb. So we could actually read the sentence like this, take out this intervening clause, humble yourselves, casting all your anxieties on him. What does that mean? It means that you humble yourselves by casting your anxieties on God. It'd be like if I told you to uh, pass me the ball, throwing it as hard as you can. How are you passing me the ball? By throwing it as hard as you can. It's the way that you're accomplishing. It's the manner by which you're accomplishing the main verb. And it's the same here. How are you humbling yourself? It's by casting your anxieties on God. You see, Peter's drawing a direct correlation between humility and anxiety. And it goes like this. When humility goes up, anxiety goes down. The opposite would also be true. If pride goes up, you can expect to be more anxious. If pride goes down, you can expect to be more and more free from anxiety because you're taking those worries and you're casting, you're throwing them on God. You can't have them anymore. They're not on your shoulders because they're on His. This is counterintuitive to a lot of us. It's not the way that we think. But again, it makes sense when we're coming from this biblical framework that pride is my desire to be God. And I know that God is in control. I know that God is powerful. So if I'm putting myself in his place, then I too should be in control. I should be able to manage the circumstances of my life. And when I struggle with that, this tension erupts because on the one hand I'm saying I'm God I'm living in a way where I am Barrett focused not God focused and so I'm at the center of my life I'm not reflecting his glory I've turned a mirror back on myself but on the other hand I'm utterly incapable of actually managing the circumstances of my life to my liking and so I become anxious and worried I don't want to discredit or discount the the things that we're actually anxious about. I mean, we look at the statistics, money, that's a real concern. Our families, that's important. Our health is serious. I don't think when Peter's writing to these churches in the first century, he's saying, hey, your suffering's not that bad. You know, it's not that big of a deal that you're being persecuted, that people are being beaten and jailed, that some people are being killed. 
That's not the point. The point is that, in fact, these are very serious things. That's why we need the real God, the true God, in charge of them. When we look at these verses, it's very interesting to see Satan depicted as a roaring lion. You see here in 1 Peter 5, this isn't the crafty serpent from the garden. This is now a roaring lion. Same devil, different trick. In Genesis 3, I think of him sneaking up to Eve, kind of stealthy, whispering in her ear, did God really say? But here, he is roaring out. He is calling attention to himself. And what is he roaring? Fear, anxiety, suffering in your future. For all of the uncertainty, you can't trust God. The things that you're worried about are too serious, and God shouldn't be in control. So he's trying to, trying to trick us into kicking God out of the driver's seat, taking the wheel ourselves, saying there's too much at stake, God. I can't trust you with this. I can't trust you with my finances. I can't trust you with my family. I can't trust you with my time. I can't trust you with my health. And so we elevate ourselves to God's place. And he roars and roars and roars. And we don't resist him, by the way. Resisting is not avoiding suffering. Resisting is in the face of suffering, standing firm in our faith. Because Satan knows that there's something much greater at stake than temporal suffering in this life even then our fear and anxiety, and we'll look to that now. Because some of us actually experience a lot of pride, but we're not anxious. In fact, when you're hearing the statistics about all these people being anxious, you're like, why are you people so worried? Like, pull it together, you know, toughen up. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and move forward. Let's do this. We are, we're Americans. We can accomplish anything. Let's do this, people. Like, quit worrying so much. But if we're living in a me-centered way and not a God-centered way, we are just as prideful. And the cost of pride isn't only anxiety, but much more importantly, Peter tells us in chapter 5, verse 5, that God opposes the proud again, is in the real God, the true God, the creator and sustainer of everything that exists, the God who is putting breath in your lungs at this very moment, if pride goes unchecked forever, will rightly and righteously focus his wrath and his anger on you. And if you're proud and you came in here this morning and you weren't anxious already, that's a really good reason to be anxious. The Bible says this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is Satan's ultimate aim. So what do we do? What's Peter's answer to these uh, Christians who are looking at him and they're looking for encouragement and they're looking for hope and they're facing suffering. We're facing suffering. What's Peter's answer to us? What's the cure for this pride and the anxiety that it produces? 
The cure to pride, he'll tell us, is humility towards God and others. So our last point here, the cure to pride is humility towards God and others. Looking back to verse 6, Peter tells us, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So we humble ourselves towards God first by recognizing it's his mighty hand. He is sovereign. He's in control. I'm not. I can't take his place. If I don't have a right understanding of who God is, I can't move forward. There's no step to. I stay in pride and in anxiety and in opposition. So we confess who the true God is. We confess his mighty hand. And then right after that, we start to cast our anxieties upon this true God, this real God, who's actually big enough and strong enough to bear them. And that includes the anxiety that this good God could rightly punish me for all the pride in my life. I give that to him. I ask for humility, and I believe in this promise that God not just opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And grace means unmerited favor. It means I didn't earn it. I cannot come to God and say, I did this, therefore you owe me. That's not how it works. We cast ourselves on him, and out of his goodness and his love and his mercy, he has promised us in those situations, he'll give us grace. He will humble us in a way that actually works to our benefit. We cast our anxieties on him. And then third step, we have to be watchful. Peter tells us in Verse 8, to be sober-minded and be watchful. The word translated sober-minded refers to being calm and collected. Uh, when, we are, when we are faced with fear, when we're faced with uncertainty, sometimes we want to react in the moment. We want to react impulsively uh, out, of, out of fear, out of emotion. He says, don't, don't live that way and, and be alert because every day, this roaring lion is going to parade in front of you all of your fears, all of the suffering that may befall you, and his goal is to make you lower God in your mind and elevate yourself to his place. You've got to know your triggers. What's the thing that's going to get you? Is it financial stress that's going to make you want to stop administering your finances in a, in a godly way to think, all right, God, after I get through this hard, th- this hard time, then, then I'll honor you with my money. Is it relational stress? Is it uh, someone mistreating you that's going to make you want to stop obeying God with respect to your relationships, stop loving people even when they do evil to you? Is it health stress? Is it, God, I, I will follow you, but, but this thing I will not give to you this disease, this situation, this tragedy? No, there's too much at stake. I'll take the wheel from here. And as soon as we find ourselves worrying about those things and stressing about those things and attempting to manage our lives in a way that is inconsistent with what we know God has told us to do, we repeat steps one and two. Confess who he really is and cast our anxieties on him. There's also this notion of humility towards others, and we see that in verse 5, 
where Peter instructs the churches to clothe themselves. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. The word translated clothe yourselves actually referred at that time to an apron that servants and slaves would wear to distinguish them from freed people. So there's this connotation that the way in which you humble yourselves before others is actually by by lowering yourself and serving them. Serve their needs. Some believe that there's an allusion here to Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, actually wrapping a servant's towel around himself and lowering himself and serving his disciples by washing their feet. The master washing the disciples' feet at a time when he faced certain suffering in the very near future. And instead of being inward focused, instead of trying to wrestle control from his father at that time, he actually overcame the temptation to suffering by looking to the interest of others, serving them, and believing that God, his father, would care for him. This is a lot to take. This is a lot to take. Some of us are facing serious situations, very serious situations. I don't want to discredit that. I know it's true because it's God's word. And I've seen it borne out as true in my life, and I've seen it really powerfully displayed in others' lives as well. I recently got the opportunity to go to Iraq with Pastor Nathan and Pastor Wesley. Uh, There's a missionary family over there that we are close with. They're a ministry partner of Revo, and they're doing a lot of really good work among refugee populations. They are providing material aid, uh, aid distributions, and also sharing the love of Jesus Christ in a place that has experienced a lot of tragedy and suffering because of warfare in recent years. Uh, One family that we met with really stood out. Uh, Their story just hit me. Uh, They were a Syrian refugee family uh, that uh, had now been been living in Iraq, and I'll refer to them as a husband and wife. I'll refer to them as Saeed, the husband, and Maya, his wife. Uh, Actually, when Saeed was still in Syria, he had been, they're Muslim background folks, but he had been interested in learning about Jesus, had been interested in Christianity, went to a church and asked some questions, uh, was kind of questioning Islam. Secret police found out about it and had beat him in Syria because of the questions he was asking. Uh, They came to Iraq because of the war in Syria, because of all the hardship there, and they were really struggling to get by Uh, financially. I mean, the, the place is flooded with people looking for work. Jobs are few and far between. Uh, they, were, they were just kind of scraping by. He was diligently looking for work, but there was just very little opportunity. Uh, on top of that, Maya was actually pregnant. She was very pregnant with twins who were coming soon. She'd already had a miscarriage once, so the doctor had uh, placed her on house rest, said, don't, don't leave the house. Um, we wouldn't want anything to happen this time, kind of a perilous health situation. We got to visit them in their home. It was a little apartment. Uh, there was one room that's kind of the, the, the main room that, that we spent our time in. No visible furniture. There were just a few rugs uh, around the outside, and it was my understanding that those rugs were where they entertained guests, 
spent their days, slept at night. That was, that was it. I actually have a picture here. This is uh, Saeed here on the, uh, well, I guess he's next to the left, and then his wife Maya there on the far right. Um, given their situation, it would have been really easy for them to both be consumed with anxiety. In fact, a lot of other families that we visited in similar situations were just clearly overwhelmed by it. I mean, there was despair just hanging off of them. But Saeed was different. From the moment that he welcomed us into his home, uh, I mean, he was smiling brightly, like really smiling brightly. He had this air of peace and rest about him that we didn't see in other places. And I was, I was asking myself, what's the difference? What's different about this guy? How is he like this? And I found out that uh, Saeed had not only heard, but had actually believed the good news about Jesus. Um, sharing with him, our, our, our missionary friends had, had helped him come to understand that Saeed had been separated from God because of his sin and that there's nothing he could do to, to earn his way back into God's favor, that, that things like pride had separated him from God, but that God didn't want that. And so God sent Jesus to live the life that Saeed could not live without any pride. And Jesus had actually died on a cross, taking upon himself the punishment that Saeed deserved. The story doesn't end there. Three days later, God raised Jesus back from the dead in victory over this evil, this tragedy, this suffering that so characterizes the world today. So that when Saeed accepted this truth about who God really was, when he turned from his sin and trusted in Jesus as his Lord, God changed his heart. And God welcomed Saeed into his family as a beloved son. He didn't have to be afraid anymore. What struck me was not only how peaceful Saeed was, how joyful, even in the midst of his circumstances, but also how he engaged other people. He was just constantly looking to the interest of others. Now, this is a culture where there's a, there's a very distinct relationship between men and women, husbands and wives, and Saeed broke so many cultural norms in the way that he looked to and cared for the interest of his wife. It was really powerful. Not only that, but he looked to our interest coming and, and visiting him as, as his guest. It was amazing. So we sit down with him, and uh, first thing we say uh, is, you know, do you have any questions for us? And the, fir the first thing on this guy's mind, not, not asking about himself, he says, how's the church in America? How are they? This guy dealing with everything that he is dealing with is asking about you. He wants to know how you are. I won't tell you what we told him because I don't want to embarrass y'all. This morning, as we were leaving, we asked him this question. We asked everyone this question. Hey, if there's one message that you have for the people in America, for the church, what would you, what would you tell them? Others had asked us to report on their suffering. They said, make our story known. Some had said, talk to the politicians in America, talk to the politicians in Iraq. We need change. This is a bad situation. Some people had said, demand justice. We want justice for all the things 
that have happened to us. Sai didn't ask for those things. He asked us to pray for him. He said, pray for me and for my wife, for our unborn twins, because ultimately, Saeed's hope wasn't in politics or in money or in himself to bring about good in his life. He'd put his faith in God. He had humbled himself before the mighty hand of God, and he was asking us to join him in casting anxieties upon him. So what about you? Let's take a spiritual selfie. This morning, how are we doing? Are we prideful? Are we humble? As one pastor put it, are you humble enough to be carefree? If you're like me, and that's a big struggle, then join me in leaning into this amazing truth this morning. This is a beautiful truth. You're not God. And you don't have to be. So let's stop trying because he'll oppose that. We don't want that. Instead, let's cast all our anxieties on him and join me. Join me in believing this. That after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever.